0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 103. <clears throat> and before we get started, let's pray again. We might seek the Lord's help and favor in this time of study this weighty <laughs> very weighty subject and the attributes especially the supremacy and sovereignty of our God. Father, what a a joy and privilege, what a humbling honor it is to just consider you and your being and your attributes. Father, in light of who we are as mere dust, creatures of your creation. Father, we so desire to know you, to magnify you, to worship you rightly as you deserve, and to love you with the fullest extents of our heart and our strength. So, Father, I ask, Lord, for your great Spirit, your Holy Spirit, the third person and the triune God who has counseled from eternity past to Decree that we would be together today to look into these truths and these realities as your children, as your adopted family, as unworthy saints. We give you the praise and the glory and ask for your guidance and wisdom and counsel in this. In Jesus' holy and precious and glorious name, amen. So as I mention We are going to attempt in our time to consider both the supremacy and the sovereignty of God. And I want to look, as I said, let's turn to Psalm 103. And Landon, would you mind reading for us verse 19? has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Amen. Thank you, brother. Now, first glance, you would say, well, supremacy, sovereignty, isn't that the same? Isn't that have the same meaning, same definition, same application? But if we look at verse 19 there, that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, we see the... The place of God, or rather the, the position of the dominion of God, where his, his throne and its positional predominance is above all else. Not, not primarily a locational attribute, even though it is in the heavens, but positional with regard to its, its highest order, its power, its, its authority. There's none higher, there's, there's none above that would give preference to, and all matters of creation come under this supreme being, the great I Am. And when David speaks of God's throne here being established in the heavens, he's not speaking of a proper throne because God is a spirit, as we know, but he's identifying this uttermost positional power of reigning and judging that God alone holds. His throne is identified as the the proper to the utmost royalty, the seat of majestic authority, the the epitome of the greatest excellency in a position where the deepest respect and honor and worship and fear is, is wholly paid by his creation and his creatures. And also... Where we may bring our petitions and our thanksgiving and our praises. But I want to look further, back a few verses further, in verse 11. K.W., would you read verse 11 for us? Psalm 103, 11. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. Mm. Amen. Russell, would you read verse 13? Uh-huh, yeah. Psalm 103, 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Amen. And Chris, would you read verses 17 and 18 for us? But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant, and remember his precepts to do them. Do you see a recurring theme in these verses and within the psalm. There's a characteristic of those who are the recipients of this benevolence and this providence. It is those who fear him. And and for us under under the new covenant, but even for those at that time, this, this is an, a, an expression of obedient faith. It is how we are only able to approach the supreme God of heaven and And through his decreed means the only way we can rightly know and rightly fear to rightly adore and worship him, all because of the atoning work of Christ that he has been done on our behalf and those recipients of, of God's amazing grace. But it's only through this means of this precious, this effective grace at work within regenerated souls solely because of the pity of the most supreme god and creator that he has had and in this we can gain the, the everlasting in and enlarging ever enlarging insight and understanding and a heart of worship unto the majesty and glory of our heavenly father and what are what can you think of what would are some of the characteristics of of God's supremacy in the heavens for us. What should we note in here? Can you see anything that stands out? Everlasting. Everlasting, Very good. Yeah. There is a duration of his supremacy. Right? Right? That, that's kind of the overriding thing exactly yeah there there's is there not a, a glory in this as well that it is the most stately and glorious places because of his presence alone this heavenly abode this habitation of his holiness and glory and and the duration of his supremacy his his kingdom is unpolluted it's incorruptible and yet his kingdom authority and dominion extends to all, even to the lowest parts of the earth. He holds dominion over hell itself, the visible and the invisible arenas, if you will. It will never end. It it is an everlasting kingdom. He will rule eternally in the new heavens and the new earth, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And the duration of his rule, even over the eternally damned, will never cease either. Anything else? Do we see an empirical characteristic of this? That it is high and lifted up, all above other domains and authorities, even those that have been established by God himself, that all other earthly empires and powers are under submission to his supremacy. There's a vastness. We are but an atom in the size of the galaxy. The earth is but a small speck. His throne room is beyond our greatest attempts at comprehending and apprehending the majesty of it. And there's also an, an ease of his oversight in his sovereignty, in his supremacy. He cannot but behold all things with a, a clear advantage, and as we'll get into later coming studies, his omniscience over all, his knowledge of all. He looks down upon the earth majestically and, and with authority, but not as one as if he were confined to some outer expanse or sphere, not as a, as a spectator, if you will, but as an ultimate, active, present governor and judge in his dominion. All right, amen. So we see there is a vast difference or a vast distance, excuse me, that separates the creator from what might be considered the mightiest creatures in any rank of creation. He is the potter. We are the clay He molds us for whatever purposes he determines. And there cannot be found a a possible alternative authority between an atheistic belief of there is no God to the absolute supreme ruler of heaven. And this is not, I'm not talking about an absence of the mediatory work of Christ, but there is no other authority between man and God turn to First Chronicles 29 where we're going to see this clearly. Someone would like to read verses 11 and 12. Okay. Landa, thank you. Thine, O Lord, is the and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from thee and thou dost rule over all and in thy hand is power and might and it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Amen. Amen. 11 and 12. 1 Chronicles 29. 29. yeah So we see the dominion God has established in the heavens, his throne room, his supremacy over all. And with that, we now come to his sovereignty. And I like what A.W. Pink describes here as, as the sovereignty of God, and it follows suit with verse 19 back in Psalm 103, that his sovereignty rules over all. And Pink Pink explains this in a way that kind of helped my, my feeble mind. The sovereignty of God is the exercise of his supremacy. It is the carrying out from the supremacy of the most high authority exercised in his creation, in his ruling, in his sustaining all things. It's to say beyond or go beyond that God is is just stronger than anything else, as that is true. But it's to see that the exercise of his supremacy, his sovereignty, is to ascribe to him, to regard him as an active, present rule and authority in and through his creation that transcends the vastness of space, the fullest extents of all time, and all dominions, seen and unseen, and we don't want to approach this as to just state or casually consider some lofty thoughts and ideals that we hold to, but the intent here is that the desire is that we would have our minds and our hearts captivated with with the truth and reality of both developing and, and maturing a God-ordained biblical worldview, of all historical events, and so that we may rightly view the current events in our world and within our own church, our very church, and in each and every circumstance within our own lives, both in the times of of comfort and our times of affliction. Jonathan Edwards says, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me a great part of his glory. It has often been my delight to approach God and adore him as a sovereign God. And just considering that these towering truths of, of the sovereignty of God, just some, some thoughts came to mind meditating on this and being humbled <laughs> in my heart, is, is that this is the foundational truth and bedrock of all our Christian theology and doctrines, right? Would you agree with that? The God, the sovereignty of God is is the bedrock and foundation. God is, and He is the God who reigns over the entirety of His created order. It is, the immovable mountain of God's supreme authority, in His right to exercise His supremacy. In his sovereign continual reign over the heavens and the earth and hell itself. God is undisputed, God's undisputed right to govern all his creation. As God, by free exercise of his supremacy, rules over all with unhindered and unrivaled majesty. And upon his throne, he is directly governing and ruling and sustaining over everything that is in the world and to the extents of all his created order. What does this do to your hearts? Where does it position your heart in consideration of God who has revealed himself to you through his word, through his son, by his spirit? Do we find this to be central to the peace that surpasses all understanding in our hearts in the midst of Physical trials, employment trials, family trials, national trials. The attribute of God's sovereignty helps us to to fully realize too, the devil is not in charge. And the fact that there is nothing that Satan himself or any of the unseen powers, which also are appointed by God for His purposes. They can have no power to thwart or hinder the supremacy and the sovereignty of God. Satan is greater than we are. We know that. He knows more theology than we do. But this should not cause us to worry and fret, and nor should we go around looking for a demon under every rock. But in submitting ourselves to God, we are, are rightly and wonderfully the subjects of the sovereign. For in our, in our submission to him and his rule, we mortify our pride. And in our times of temptation, we're able to resist the enemy, to resist the devil. And it promises us, James promises us, that he will flee. Satan is not sovereign, and we shouldn't cringe as if he has some ability to thwart The plans of God, the sovereignty of God that would cause the father to wring his hands in worry and fear that something might be upset and changed in his plans. His plans have been decreed. So the sovereignty of God. How does this impact our thoughts when we consider national events? Our presidency. China's threat. Russia's threat. Technological threats artificial intelligence, any of this. And meditating and believing God in this is what sets our hearts at peace, is what brings true security in the midst of what appears to be temporally chaos, chaos, but is all under the sovereign control of our Father that the King of kings and Lord of lords resides powerfully in the heavens, presides over all powers that are here on earth and in his church and in our lives. Spurgeon said, There's no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, In the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. And A.W. Pink, in his directness and bluntness, but truth, (laughs) God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, And no one can thwart him, and no one can hinder him. God himself declares this to us. Let's turn to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. The Lord says, of himself for I am God and there is no other I am God and there was no one like me declaring the end from the beginning knowing the full extent of our created order the expanse of time but also into eternity past and eternity future and from ancient times things which have not been done those those pr- prophetic Utterances, those promises that had not yet been fulfilled in Isaiah's time, yet those things which even have not yet been done are still under his decree, under his control. He says, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And is it not God's good pleasure that we, as adopted children in his family, should find great pleasure and peace and comfort in knowing and being known by him. What what love and adoration should be stirred in our hearts. The, the sovereignty of God characterizes the whole being of God in every one of his attributes, and through the very exercise of his own power. As I said, his sovereignty extends and reaches into every facet of the created order, and yes, even into the circumstances of our brief existence. Again, this is what's declared in Psalm 103, verse 19 for us. This is called the goodness of, or the godness of God, excuse me. He is independently and royally presiding over all affairs of creation. We also find this attribute praised and sung and declared by David. In, in what are called the enthronement psalms. And if you haven't ever meditated and read through them, it's Psalm 93 to 99. Excellent psalms of thanksgiving and praise and honor. And again, in each one of these, there is a, a repeated chorus declared either from the outset or in the midst of these psalms that David says. Psalm 93, 1. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Psalm ninety six ten, say among the nation, the Lord reigns. Psalm ninety seven one, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. And Psalm ninety nine one, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. How is this, what does this tell us about our own heart's response to the circumstances we we encounter? I know I'm throwing a lot of personal questions out there and examining questions, but this is what the word of God should do to us and especially the attributes of our Father. From this came their divine will. Excuse me, I jumped ahead of page, I'm sorry. The declarations that David puts forth in these psalms, did you notice what tense they're in? The Lord reigns, absolutely. Present tense. Yes, brother. Cherubim? Cherubim, Those are one of the, Isaiah 6, 1. If you read that about when Isaiah beheld the throne room of God, the cherubim were angels declaring the holiness of God, wings covering their eyes, wings covering their feet, wings to fly, continually saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in that vision, what happened to Isaiah? We're going to talk about this later. He fell and dropped dead. He was as nothing. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people in a land of unclean lips. I am I am nothing I am abased before God that should be our heart <laughs> but you're right brother this is a present tense he reigns not not historical only not in the great events like the red sea not in destroying the walls of jericho not in flooding the earth not in just the demonstrative records of scripture And it's not just a future reigning, that one day when he returns, he will then begin to reign. It's a very present activity in our hearts and lives. And I I won't get into eschatological discussions there, but he is reigning now. If he is not reigning, then we are in a lot of trouble. (laughs) No boundaries exist with the jurisdiction of the Father. The Lord reigns. And God is not a, a territorial sovereign either, but over the whole earth it's displayed. He rules over nations and nature, events, circumstances, good and evil people, even reigning over human minds, and yes, he reigns over our wills. Proverbs 21.1 In the Lord's, excuse me, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. Even the kings, the rulers, the president of the United States, the emperor in China, of Russia, they're all in accordance and guided by their hearts, guided by the sovereign will, the decrees of the Father. Proverbs twenty one, one. Yeah, uh, so what do you think about people that set goals and like I don't know, dreams? I guess I don't know. To is that okay to do Make your plans and allow the Lord to direct your steps. If you stay in a, in a heart attitude of submission that whatever the Lord wills is for the best of me and trust Him with each day. He's going to direct your steps. I testify to that, day in and day out. Yeah. So along those same lines, as far as uh, him directing kings and then trusting in like the events, right, or like trusting in God and the events that come about. Like I was thinking of like Christ, right, when Pilate said, "You don't realize, like I have the power, power to crucify right. you." He specifically responds, "But you wouldn't have that unless it was given to you." Given to you, absolutely. So, see, Right, and that's why Paul talks about in Romans 13. God has established those authorities. We should submit to them, trusting that they are to bring about judgment for evil and for our good, our protection. You know, there, there's, there's an order and a purpose in that. Amen. So let's just quickly look back at, at the extents of God's sovereignty back to the beginning of time when there was just God and God alone in the triune council. God's sovereignty and in, in salvation affirmed in, in great plainness and a, a positive reality in Ephesians one eleven, where it says, Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Yeah, if you want to turn there, Ephesians one i I'm going to be there just for a few minutes. having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will now a good upcoming or a well educated greek student would would examine this verse in a little bit different order but there's four key words here predestined purpose counsel and will god the father the Son and the Holy Spirit in the inner Trinitarian consultation and deliberation, they they counseled together prior to the creation of the universe. They counseled together, knowing, considering, planning all the possibilities of creation and what would entail. So first was the council, the pre creation council of the Triune God. And from this came their will, their divine decision, the choice of their desires that all would come to pass. And within this sovereign will is the choice of God's elect. Those who would be his own possession and all the affairs of providence in our lives. Our gender, our DNA, our parents, our birthplace, our residence, when we would be saved, when we would come to faith, when this effective grace of God would take hold of our hearts, where we would go to church, right up to this very moment in time where we exist. All things were prescripted for our lives by the author of the eternal decree. And then we see his purpose, that it would be carried out in his time in accordance with his determination and resolve, his will would be executed and there would be no deviation or plan B or alternate in case of a oops occurred down the line that God wasn't aware of. No, he knew all things. If you remember the example of the pen, you know, he saw from beginning to end all the events and ordained them. He purposed them. And then finally, predestination. This is God's guarantee that His sovereign will will be will come about. It will be brought. It will brought, be brought to pass. It is as if it had already occurred in God's mind. It was according to the foreknowledge of God, because He is the architect of the master plan of the entire universe, and in in such precision and detail that it encompasses everything that comes to pass. As, as Sproul says, there's no maverick molecules in the universe. Nothing is beyond his control and sustaining power. And any engineers in here, that'll blow your mind. Just think about it. anyone, it'll blow your mind. You know, down to the sub-atomic, subatomic particles are sustained by his power, for his glory, for his purpose to carry out his decreed will. In every instance of time, any questions so far? Yes, brother. Okay. Yes, uh, so you said God has settled over everything, which I agree with. Okay. So God has a will, but doesn't Satan also have a will for us? And God is that. His desire, his, Satan's desire, is to deceive us, to get our minds off of God, to get us away from God, to see us destroyed in sin, to to. For us to receive that final payment of death and eternal destruction. And God has given him domain. He's the prince of the power of the air. So he has God's controlled. He, he is limited by God's control in what he does in the earth. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He has a third of the host of heaven with him. Who were on unconditional or conditional ground of either obeying or or. Following a lie, so. Yes. Yeah. He even has to ask permission yeah. From God exactly. But it's interesting in the case of Job, who who was it that brought Job to mind? God Himself. Yeah. Have you considered my servant Job? Yeah. Anything else? Amen. All right. I want to look into some specific arenas of God's sovereignty, and there, this, (laughs) we could spend several months just looking at all the different arenas of God's sovereignty, in every aspect, from salvation to the reprobate to creation. But I, I want to look at four of them here. The first one: just consider His His eternal purposes from creation to the salvation of the elect, that his divine decisions and his divine desires, his intentions for goodness are carried out in the lives of his beloved and his judgment on those of the wicked, those who rebel against his word and decrees. He demonstrates his divine divine determination to execute his righteous will throughout all eternity. And he carries out his sovereignty in his work of predestination of his elect. And we'll talk about that here a little bit more in a minute. In bringing about the totality of his purpose and fulfillment and glory, which will be revealed to both his children and to all creation at Christ's return. And another arena is over his created order, the the very structure and substance of all that is known, seen and unseen. Even the angelic host and all that exists has God as its source. The plants, the creatures, the forces are all under his complete authority. And all these belong to God and exist for his glory. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 33. Someone like to read verses six through nine for me, please. His administration in creation extends over all inanimate matter. In Genesis, when with the creation, God said, let there be light by the word of his mouth, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let the waters above separate from the waters below. And there was no rain for 1,600 years until the floods came from above and from below till he ushered that forth. In the plagues of Egypt, it was under his dominion and sovereign control. The parting of the Red Sea to cause dry ground to form in the middle of the Red Sea. In the turning back of the sun, 10 degrees for Hezekiah. All of the earth, the wind, the rain, the snow, the storms, the fire, even what's called global warming, are all under the performance and power of his word and under his control. And they are all to fulfill his good pleasure. And we see, as we, as, as Pastor Milo talked about last week, the, the, the groaning of creation, crying out for the revelation of the glory of the children of God. We see that, but it is still all under his control. And we see how further and further, how much closer and closer we are getting to that ultimate time. Lord Jesus, come quickly. And over irrational creatures, over all the entire animal kingdom, from the forming of every type of bird and creeping thing, bringing them into the ark. Can you imagine Noah's thought of all these animals being brought to him under sovereign control of the Lord? seven of those clean, and two of the unclean, all brought, stationed, cared for. Man, (laughs) no one else but God could do that. But again, too, in the plagues of Egypt, the frogs, the locusts, all these under the authority of God, the birds, the crows, ravenous birds, meat-eating birds being used to bring food to Elijah, one of his servants. And even in the New Testament, Peter finding, throwing in a hook, pulling up a fish, finding a coin to pay taxes to an authority established by God, all in his decreed order. It's so over all of history, another era, arena, all of history from the beginning of time, the events of men, As we talked about, the direction of the hearts of the rulers as the channels a river, the raising up and tearing down of nations, calling and sanctifying peoples and destroying nations and peoples. All of these are directed, not not just set in motion as if God put them out and let them go do their thing. All directed, sovereignly controlled and guided for his purpose. Look down just in the next two verses there in Psalm 33. It says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. And then finally, his sovereignty over salvation and his elect. And I know we could spend several hours here. This is just incredible. Not in debate and argument. (laughs) We could go there, but no. But the calling and the saving of his own people, according to his eternity past pre-creation triune council, to say, Chris, you're mine. Brian, you're mine, you know? And we see, turn over with me real quick, Ephesians chapter 1. Glorious verse. Wally, would you mind reading that for me? Ephesians 1, verse 4. One yep. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Amen. That's it, yeah. So, the choosing of His elect was made by Himself in His eternal counsel. We had no say. We didn't get a chance to cast a vote. Our parents couldn't do anything for us. There was nothing we could do to earn anything in eternity past. We were known by God then, but even then, in his knowing us, he still chose us and called us to himself. Acts 2.23, this, this provision of this salvation through the predetermined will of God, in order for us to be called and brought into his family, Christ would have to be delivered up and crucified. His very son, in the eternal council, agreeing with such a willing heart and love and compassion on unworthy enemies to say he's mine, she's mine, he's mine, she's mine. I want to bring them to you amen romans nine twenty one to twenty three we know this well from the same lump of clay, he called us. Or excuse me, that was from Romans eight, twenty eight, I apologize. But not Romans nine twenty one to twenty three, that from the same lump of clay, the outcome of the use of that clay in the potter's hands is solely under his determination. A vessel for honor, a vessel for dishonor. And Acts thirteen, forty eight, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Those who are chosen will believe. Believing is the consequence of God's decree. It has been appointed that they will believe. And there is a limited number that are ordained for eternal life, as many as, not all. Not all who, we know that not all who hear the gospel will believe. And the ordination is not mere external privileges. The ordination by God is eternal life. Not to service, but to salvation itself. And not just about this life only, but eternal life in knowing God and knowing Christ. And as many as not only the appointed, but not one less who are ordained by God will believe. And then finally, Romans 11, 5, and 6. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of our works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And there is today still a present-day remnant being chosen by God. There is a continuing call of the elect, even today. It's not finished. It's not over. God determines that. And no inherent good is ever seen in us. There are no works accomplished by us that can earn this salvation, this calling, but is solely upon the choice and grace of the Most High God. So we've looked into the attributes of God's supremacy and his sovereignty any, any questions? Because this last part I want to get into, what what is our attitude? What should be our attitude? Not our thought or initial response, but what does our heart attitude, our devotion, our life look like in response to God's sovereignty? Any questions first? Any? Yes, brother. Well, I would just say, you know, eventually, you know, the Christian has to decide whether God's decree is right. Mm-hmm. Oh, amen. Amen. Yeah, I mean, and so in that sense we should we should rejoice even in our like Paul said in all seven Romans 5 would you rejoice even in our church. tribulations. Amen. Us, yeah. Amen. Utterly yep. Amen. Did you read my notes? <laughs> that, that, that shows the spirit, man, yeah. Any other comments, thoughts before I get into this? Yeah. I've got five minutes. Back off that, you know, Romans 11, 33 to 36, where Paul expounds with... Doxology, yeah, yeah. After that message that God has... Those first eleven chapters, yeah, yeah. amen yeah think of, uh, the yeah mm-hmm. absolutely from within yeah amen. so just quickly in five minutes and and if you want my notes on this, I'll send it out because it's this this is where the meditation really took hold. God's word is the revelation of his truth to us with a dual purpose to give us divine information theology, and inspiration, doxology, not just to gratify some idle curiosity, but it is a truly deep edifying work in our souls. This great attitude attribute of God's sovereignty that we find in his word is so much more than just an abstract principle, which tries to help us explain a rationale behind God's governing rule, but it carries within it a reality and purpose a motive for awakening us to godly fear and holy reverence. It's to promote within us, through us, and through us, God-honoring and righteous living. And this divine truth has been revealed to us to bring our rebellious, wandering hearts into subjection to our Heavenly Father. As Pastor said, to have that godly, biblical worldview, that mindset— That God ordains what he wills and and I will rejoice and be grateful in that because it is for my good no matter what it is it is always for our good God cannot do evil toward us he ordains and allows evil but he does not direct evil in our lives you know so we can go on and talk about Job and Daniel and Isaiah I want to just look at a couple other points here Godly fear. What is our attitude? Godly fear. Is there a fear of God before our eyes? Do we tend to be indifferent, preferring pleasure and ease? The fear of the Lord, according to Proverbs 1 7, is the beginning of all wisdom. And our souls are never truly happy until they have a vision through the eyes of faith and scripture of the awful greatness of God. Implicit obedience a heart that does not require qualifications prior to our compliance, an absolute obedience, one that can only be understood when we grasp the smallness and nothingness of ourselves before God and cast ourselves at his feet for mercy and love and grace, and then seeking to please him in every aspect of our lives. We see this in you know, what happens to an irreverent heart, will only bear disobedience, Pharaoh, Exodus 5. There will be an entire resignation in such a way that our murmurings become songs of thanksgiving and praise. To be captivated and transformed by the sovereignty of God that our natural complaints, our perceived entitlements, and even an accumulation of skills that we think to be deserved and kept, even the loss of a loved one. Rather than the instinct of our natural human heart to cry out against God, we are then enabled to bow to the divine will, to acknowledge that he has not afflicted us as we sorely deserve. Thankfulness and joy. Pastor shared on that. I, I, I can't add any more to that. But just the blessed truth of the sovereignty of God is not to make us think we just resentfully bow and accept the inevitable. No. No. It's removed from selfish and blind responses. It's a truth that for the child of the living God will cause our hearts to resound with the psalmist to sing, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then adoring worship and the sovereignty of God is not the sovereignty of a tyrant but it's exercised pleasure of the Supreme Being who is infinite in his wisdom and goodness to us as, as his creatures. And I am out of time with that. So thank you all.